from the True North Podcast Network. This is Philosophia, a show in which we discuss the philosophical concepts of the classical Christian tradition and their application to our lives today, and especially their application to classical teaching. I'm David Schenk, and on today's show, I'm going to pick up on that theme I was discussing in the last episode, the misery that we make for ourselves through our own unconscious adoption of the secular moral categories that so saturate our society today. And so with that, our failure to see the category of personhood. I'll also discuss how we could turn that around, and then I'll discuss how the solution that I perceive applies to classical teaching and how we might approach that today. Last time, I said a great deal, some of it strident, about personhood and how our collective cultural failure to see that category and to see it as a fundamental, as an irreducible category, one that you can't pick apart in terms of others, creates moral monsters because it inescapably produces moral alienation. I do not give moral status of any special sort to things. And so if humans are ultimately nothing more than biologically animated, very complicated biocultural things, then there's no special reason for us to have any moral status more than any other biological organism. But if we are not merely biocultural things, but persons instead, sons and daughters of God, right? That's what Imago Dei really means, after all. Then there is a reason to see ourselves as in some default way, morally inviolable, as having a default level of dignity or basic human value that cannot be, cannot be violated, cannot be transgressed, even when right, all sorts of benefits could be seen from it. The dilemma that I see in this is twofold. Sure, on an obvious level, we become alienated from other people morally and emotionally, when we see humanity as nothing more than a position on the phylogenetic tree. We see humans as nothing more than biological and sociocultural machines of some complicated, but still ultimately mechanical sort. Sure. But remember I said in the last episode that humans are mimics. We are, and we always will be. And this is why all of the worst evils of social engineering are as effective as they are. Humans are mimics. We get into habits long before we get into the habit of thinking about our habits. And the very first habit we get into is mimicry, following the patterns of behavior of those around us. So if I see everyone around me as ultimately just a 
biocultural piece of machinery, a thing at the end of the day with a finite lifespan of, say, between 70 and 90 years. Average. I have no way of failing, at least unconsciously, to see myself in those exact same terms. If that's all you are, and I'm like you, and I am, then it follows that that's all I am. Each one of us will suffer that moral alienation, not just from others, but even from our own selves. Once you have the category personhood, though, all that gets cleaned up in a heartbeat. The problem is so few people, even within Christianity today, so few people see it. They don't see the category itself. Part of us does. There is an, a, a sort of unthinking or unconscious part of us that does still, perhaps unwittingly, see the category personhood or the category person. The part of us that likes to talk about dignity and basic human rights and inviolable human rights and all that sort of jazz, right? Which is pretty popular, pretty au courant today. That kind of talk is flatly incompatible with all consequentialist ethics, with all utilitarian ethics. None of it fits. You could fit it with Kantian ethics to a certain extent, but remember last time I said, you know, Kant has those criteria in his system, but he doesn't really have, on my interpretation of him, a proper grounding for them, whereas natural law theory does. That part of us, whatever our moral theory, you know, that we're committed to is, overwhelmingly, in academia, in K-12, through and among kids today, overwhelmingly, what they have is, unwittingly, without knowing that this is what it is, what they have is utilitarian moral thinking. Everything is in terms of cost-benefit analysis. Everything is in terms of what it gets you, right? And the goal isn't anything like virtue. The goal is happiness. The goal is contentment, pleasure, right? Social status, wealth, comfort, entertainment that kind of stuff. And whatever gets you that, that's what you want. And whatever gets everybody that, that's the thing, right thing for us to do on a societal level. That's where people's heads are today. They don't know the name for it, but I guarantee you that's where their heads are. All of which is completely screwed up. So there's a dilemma here. How do you get people who don't already see this category person, to begin to see it. You could try what I once tried when I was teaching at Messiah College. You could try to just give them lectures on it. And so long as they're sitting in a chair and just thinking about it abstractly, there's a chance that a good number of them might even begin to see it. But it probably won't carry over into their habits. It probably won't carry over into the actual conduct of their lives day to day. How do you hit them there in their actual daily conduct? 
How do you reach them at that visceral level that rarely pays any attention to abstractions and so to philosophical categories? The approach, I think, will have to be indirect, oblique. Lately, I've been reading this wonderful book of ethics um, by uh, Dr. John Petitsis. It's called The Ethics of Beauty. And in it, I have found a few spots where I disagree with him on how far he takes some point. I have not yet succeeded in finding any fundamental points, though, on which I disagree with Dr. Petitsis. The more I read him, the more I admire him and agree with him. And one of Petitsis' big points in The Ethics of Beauty is don't start off someone's moral discovery or moral training or moral rehabilitation after some trauma or after some alienation with the category of goodness. They're too alienated from it. Start them off with something that can reach them even in their worst pain. Start off with beauty. Get them to see real, living, breathing beauty in the world again. And a whole lot of alienation starts to fall away right there. And the rest becomes a whole lot more manageable after that. Once someone can start to see the reality of beauty, even if they don't see it intellectually yet, right? They may still think, oh, that's all just subjective and blah, 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 blah. All right, all right fine. It isn't. But suppose, you know, they're still thinking that way. Never mind. You get them enraptured in something truly, transcendently beautiful. Everything of their heart cannot believe that sort of relativism about ethics anymore. Everything of their heart, never mind their intellect, which is alienated at the moment anyway, everything of their heart, everything of where they're actually living is being transported by this beauty that just tears them out of themselves, brings them to forget themselves and to stop obsessing over themselves. Before they even know enough to articulate it, they can feel the objective reality of that transcendent beauty. And once you've got the reality of beauty, the reality of goodness, and the reality of truth, are easy because those three transcendentals interpenetrate. And so once I get someone to see the reality of beauty, getting them to see the truth of the reality of goodness is, by comparison, a cakewalk. And the same with the reality of truth. That, to my mind, is a much more effective tactic than going straight at trying to get someone to see the objectivity of goodness or of truth. Or pointing out that when they deny the objectivity of truth, they contradict themselves. Even if they, ha they have the intellectual patience to see that they're contradicting themselves and that it's incapable of being true, down in their gut, they're not going to care. But you get them face to face with 
not just thinking about, but actually beholding and contemplating real beauty. At that moment, if there are relativists about truth or goodness, only in name will they be so. In everything of their heart, in everything of what they're living, they will be realists about goodness, realists about truth. And getting them to see it will be a lot easier. That tactic is one that I'm now almost convinced is right. And reading Petitsis, The Ethics of Beauty, did a lot to convince me that that's, that's the right way to go here. And this is relevant to our work as classical teachers. It's directly relevant. A little over a month ago, I think it was, well, maybe two months ago, I accepted a job offer at uh, a classical school. I'm going to be a classical high school teacher at Trinity School at Greenlawn in, Green, in uh, South Bend, Indiana. Totally looking forward to it. And Trinity has a policy on proselytization and, and doctrinal teaching that is somewhat unusual in the classical Christian world. And I think it's the right one to have. They actually forbid their teachers from proselytizing on campus. We are not permitted to go around making more good little Calvinist students or good little Catholic students or good little evangelical students or good little Eastern Orthodox students out of our students. We're not allowed to do it. And I think that's right. I think we shouldn't be. I think a, a classical school that tries to do that, that tries to just hammer its students on doctrine, is going at this the wrong way. They have good motives. But the approach, I think, is fatally flawed. If we try to indoctrinate our classical students into a string of theological and maybe moral commitments, we've got several problems there. First of all, we're participating in brainwashing. We're participating in social engineering, which itself already violates one of the most fundamental things about the category of personhood. So even if the theological and moral doctrines into which we indoctrinate them are the true ones, the fact that we have raised them via such indoctrination is a fatal error. We do want our students and our sons and daughters to understand the truth of these things, though, right? We're not just going to, like, leave it to them to figure it out. That's not an improvement. So how do you work this, right? I think Petitsis' approach is applicable here. And I think it's the path of wisdom. And I can tell you right now, with John Ballsbaugh's permission, it's the approach that I'm going to take at Trinity. This is exactly the approach that I intend to take at Trinity. You don't indoctrinate them into these 
convictions because, well, for one thing, brainwashing begets brainwashers, and we don't really need more of those in the world today. But for another thing, it's not like the students aren't going to notice it. If we try to indoctrinate them, they will catch on soon enough to how much of this they've just been told to believe, taught to believe, where their reason for holding these propositions true has nothing to do with evidence and everything to do with fear of reprisal. What a cowardly way to try to bring someone to truth. Fear of reprisal. What, what a failure that is. Show them something beautiful. Show them something so beautiful, it tears them away from themselves to where they cannot pay attention to anything else. They can't even pay attention to themselves. Show them that something and show them the beauty of that something and let them see and figure out that the beauty of it is there in the thing, not in their reaction to it. And you've already got them, I would say, more than two-thirds of the way there. Once they've got the reality of beauty, by the nature of the transcendentals, they've got the reality of goodness and the reality of truth. And once they've got all three, with just a little further careful nudging, they've got the reality of God. And I think it's important that this not be something we... didactically just teach to them in a lecture, but that it be something we show them, reveal to them, so that they do the seeing, they do the drawing of connections, instead of us just shoving it at them. Students today, classical and secular, are so accustomed to having all sorts of stuff shoved at them. They are so advertised to and so indoctrinated. They're so flooded with attempts at moral and political indoctrination with everything of social media that they have right now and everything of, if they're in public school, K through 12 public education. God protect our children, not just from public education today, but especially from the education theorists who are some of the most morally blind people I have met because they just don't see the category personhood at all. It is nowhere in their intellectual framework. So if I try to indoctrinate my students into a bunch of theological and moral propositions that in fact are true, the problem there is I'm still indoctrinating them. I'm still trying to tell them what to believe instead of showing them the evidence that I myself had to find before I came to believe any of these things. The best evidence that I say we can show some skeptical teenager who's wondering why they used to believe all this God stuff and why they should go on believing it. And trust me, a lot of classical Christian students 
when they're in the throes of adolescence are going through this because I talked to a bunch of them on the campus of the college while I was teaching there. They had come from classical schools and they were worrying about this. I think some of the best evidence we can give them won't be any of the standard classical proofs of God's existence because that's not what they're looking for. They're looking for evidence they can feel, taste, touch. Beauty. They've got a really strong nose for beauty at that age. That's the place where I say we should try to reach them first and foremost. And by the nature of the transcendentals, once they see the reality of beauty, they will see the reality of goodness. And they will see the reality of truth. And once they see all three of those interpenetrating, that probably will take some didactic lectures, they'll see the reality of God and won't have to go on holding to it on account of fear of reprisal. That's the kind of approach that I think can actually stick with one of our students. Where when they go away to college and they run into all of these cheerful, morally and intellectually superficial skeptics, they won't just so easily and naturally become one. They see the reality of beauty and then through that see the reality of truth and the reality of goodness. I think their faith will be a lot stronger than if fear of reprisal were the thing keeping them in the fold. A lot stronger. And that's certainly the way I'm going to do my teaching at Trinity. My kids are going to be in a glut of beauty and goodness. And they're going to see me pursuing intellectual honesty and so truth. And so by example, they're going to see the value of that instead of me giving them a lecture about it. Those, I think, are the kinds of lessons that, that reach us where we need to be reached. And therefore, those are the kinds of lessons that really stick. This has been Philosophia. Thanks for joining. And I hope to see you next time. This podcast is brought to you by the True North Podcast Network, produced by Classical Academic Press. For more information on Philosophia and the other shows on the True North Podcast Network, visit truenorth.fm. That's truenorth.fm. <laughs>